Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, last week I began a series that's only going to last through today on biblical leadership. And last week we looked at 1 Peter 5 and I talked about uh, shepherd leadership and uh, the how of leadership in the church according to the New Testament. And as we've talked about this, I I began just by saying that we live in a generation of time when uh, leadership or the authority of leadership is questioned at every level and every realm. And I I just simply have to pause and say, uh, in the church, the reason that so much leadership is questioned is because we've given every inclination that it should be. Uh, and I confess that to begin with. And let me just say this, that even though church leaders have given people every right to question the validity of it, I wish I had better news to say that will stop, but it won't. As long as there have been leaders in the Bible, there have been leadership failures. And that will continue to be because even leaders are sinful people and just people and that's why we must look to the Lord for his plan and what he has designed for his people to be led by never ceasing to look to him in the leadership of the church as the chief shepherd and as we saw last week he gives under shepherds to the church that he might as the chief shepherd lead the church When we come to the Bible and we study this, we find that God does have a plan for leadership in the church and that church leadership is vital for the healthy spirituality of each person, but also to the faithfulness of mission uh, of Jesus Christ in the world and for the church to remain on mission. So Christians should never fear nor neglect proper authority because we worship the one who holds all authority, Jesus Christ. And while injustices continue in this world in many ways and at every level, there will come a day when the one who rules on his throne will make all things right. And that's what we live in hope of. Last week, we talked about the three New Testament words that are used for the office of elder or pastor. And they're basically interpreted elder, overseer, and pastor, each one denoting a different aspect of the same role in the, in the church. And we looked at Peter's use of the word pastor to talk about uh, that under-shepherd leadership and why Jesus gave them to the church. But today, I want us to move from the what or the how to the who. Who is it that Jesus gives? And as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to take this word translated elder, and we're going to look at the qualifications and the characteristics that qualify a man for leadership in the church. Biblical eldership is the means of a congregation applying the gospel 
for a healthy, thriving community of Christ followers who are faithfully led to carry the gospel to the whole world. That's why it's important for us to take time as we as a congregation are gathered to discuss this because there's not just a select few who are responsible for this, but the whole congregation who is responsible to understand leadership in the church and hold the church to that leadership standard. So let me go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read the first seven verses and then we'll continue. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Now, what I don't want to try and do today is because it's far too immense of a topic is to try to say everything there is to say about church leadership. There's just too much to be said. As well, if we looked at the whole of 1 Timothy, one of the reasons that we can confidently say that church leadership and understanding that for the whole congregation is that congregation applying the gospel holistically to itself is because that's what Paul does in the writing of 1 Timothy in his letter to young Timothy. But I'm having to presume upon some of that because I want to give ample time to the verses that we have today. And what I want us to see is simply this, that Jesus gives men to lead the church who are qualified by character to lead for faithfulness to his mission. And that's what I want us to stick with and to be stuck by today. Elders are men who are called to expend themselves for the sake of the gospel within the church, to lead by personal example, by oversight, and by their practice, to lead the church, to feed the church by the teaching of God's word, to guard the church, by its doctrine and its teaching, and to care, administer spiritual care to the church. Jesus gives qualified men to oversee the church. And so today I want to look at who is qualified. Who is it that is qualified? And first of all, I want us to look at these characteristics by by seeing them in three areas of life. And then once we look at these three areas of life, we'll come back at the end and I want to talk just about a process of discernment for the church. So first of all, that first area of life is what I call the qualifications of a man's personal life, 
a man's personal life. And Paul begins uh, in verse 2 by saying this, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Now this first qualification or characteristic rather is really an umbrella of his entire life. So when we begin to look at a man's personal life, we're seeing an umbrella of his entire life. It's, it's not that he must be perfect. That's a standard no man will meet, but often one attached to leadership. Therefore, we're destroyed when leaders fall and fail. But this is a qualification that measures that. That says, yes, there is an expectation to be above reproach, and that should be a qualification met, though not an exaltation of the individual. It's not perfection, but it is this, that nothing can lay hold of, in other words, take hold of, to be validated by, in order to disqualify regularly. A man may fool many and may fool many for an extended period of time, But what he is within will ultimately determine what he does in his life. Above reproach is that first aspect or that first characteristic of a man's personal life that says there is no part of life to disqualify him from leading the Lord's church. The second aspect of this personal life, Paul continues, is he must be the husband of one wife. Now, This phrase is one of the most debated of all of the characteristics, and so I want you to understand what it says. Literally translated, the Greek says one woman man. One woman man. And so that when, when you understand what this is talking about, it's really best understood not only in specific reference to marriage, but in reference to sexual purity in all of life. It would include things like polygamy would be ruled out. That's more than one, right? It would include things like a divorce that was not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It would include singleness as well as marriage. What I'm saying is that it is holistic of the life of a man in regards to his sexual purity. If a man is married, he must demonstrate a life of being singularly and uh, uh, devotedly committed to his wife by loving her according to scriptural standards. If a man is single, he must be committed to biblical standards of purity as set forth in the scriptures. And the point that we are making here is not that one qualifies and the other qualifies in terms of marital status, but the way in which they live out that status within which they find themselves. It is sexual purity, sexual purity of the eyes, sexual purity of the mind, sexual purity of the heart, sexual purity of the mouth out of which the heart speaks. You see, this aspect of a man's life is one that never can have its guard let down. The the one woman man learns how to relate to women in a way that honors them appropriately as being created in the image of God. And friends, we live in a day and a time 
where that may be the most confusing aspect of sexuality today. And from that, many other confusions stem. Not a man who is flirtatious or makes ladies uncomfortable by his presence. Not a man who is demeaning or looking down upon ladies because of the way he approaches or speaks or is around them. As well, a man cannot avoid marriage because he's afraid to commit. This is a very common, specifically in our day, as the age of marriage continues to rise Culturally, there is a fear being cast over young men who simply do not want to marry out of inconvenience, uh, out of, of other life priorities. And a fear to marry. I'm not talking about uh, some other valid reason not to marry because we know that a man doesn't have to be married to be qualified. But a fear to commit is ultimately not about the marriage relationship. It's about the inclination of heart before the Lord. And a one-woman man practices biblical purity in all aspects of his life and holds to that. And yea, I might say, fights for that. Because when a man becomes an elder or a pastor, he never ceases to be a man. Therefore, this qualification must continually be guarded in every way. He continues, though, with these qualifications of personal life. And he says a man must be sober-minded, free from the excessive influence of passion or lust or of emotion of life. And see, this is that qualification that stabilizes life because he's not driven by emotion. He's not driven by anger or his desires in action as they carry out. Rather, he demonstrates an objectiveness in all of these areas and even specifically in regard to his own thinking, to his own actions, and to his own preferences. Sober-minded is a mind that is controlled by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Not that there is never a, a pattern of thinking that enters that is wrong, but it never trumps the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the control of his word over the mind. Sober-mindedness means thinking biblically about honoring the Lord in all matters instead of following the next wave of thought or just allowing oneself to be carried along by the next fad that comes. Sober-minded, self-controlled then. As we see these qualifications of personal life, we see them from the innermost and being carried outward in their expression. Self-control just simply means that a man doesn't use freedoms as a license for his indulgence. That his sober-mindedness leads him to exercise self-control in his outward actions. Self-control ensures that his actions align with his sober-mindedness and then respectable as we continue to see in his personal life. Disciplined and honorable. And he can be respected because of 
who he is. Regarding his reputation, this speaks to that, but it goes further than only reputation, that his demonstration of life in the public realm demonstrates integrity and a shortening of the gap between what he claims and what he lives. I once had a college professor who at a time of my life that maybe God had him say it just for me, I don't know, but I know this, it's stuck and it's never gone away. He said this, if you want to be respected in life, you must command it with your life. And for generations since I've heard that, so the last, um, I don't know, five or so years, it's often struck me when I hear those demanding respect. You don't demand respect, you command respect. It's a quality commanded by the way you live, not demanded about your life by the words you speak. Live respectably and you won't have to sweat your reputation. And then hospitable. Not only the way he lives, who he is internally and the way he lives out, but the way he receives other people. He must be loving toward and kind to strangers. You see, hospitality at its essence simply means a love for the stranger, the, the person you don't know. There's a sense of love. And, and, and the personal life must be one of love. It must be a disp- disposition that determines public expression. That's why it's so important that, that in the way other people are treated, yea, even the least among us, there's a sense of love for them. A man who does not love people cannot lead the church. So hospitable means a genuine love for all that leads the church to take the gospel to all people. At the heart of the matter is the man must be hospitable in his heart or the great commission will never capture his heart. He'll love a few because he's loved by a few. But the great commission commends us to love all and to take the gospel to them regardless of the cost. The first area of qualification is the qualification of personal life. The second area of qualification is the qualification of public life. Public life. Paul goes on to say he must be able to teach. Able is a word that speaks to two natures, not only the ability, but the aptness. He must be able to explain the scripture, but not only able, he must have an aptitude to it. He senses that desire to not only say what it says, but help people understand why it says what it says and the importance of it in honoring God. As a matter of fact, this is the one distinguishing characteristic of elders and pastors. If you moved on from verse 8 forward in 1 Timothy 3, you would see the qualifications for deacons. And those qualifications set forth almost parallel to the qualifications for elders, except the handling of God's word in this ability to teach. So able to teach is that commitment to study and to teach self-learning, if you will, the humility of life that submits itself to the authority of the word so that the authority of the word is absorbed and can be Uh, then put out from that 
And that is combined with ability and the discipline to do it. Now, there's an interesting turn that Paul takes at this point. Not only must he be able to teach, but now he's going to shift and he's going to begin to address some negatives that cannot be true of this man. Sometimes understanding what is is best explained by stating what is not, right? We understand that because we see that in many areas of life. But a man who is to be a pastor or an elder cannot be given to drunkenness this seems obvious doesn't it I can remember as a high schooler a local pastor in our town on his third DWI was still trying to convince his church that he was just drunk in the spirit instead of little s spirits that's what Paul's speaking of pastors shouldn't be a drunk that seems so obvious does it not And yet in our day and time, this becomes the comfort of choice for many. But but there's a bigger aspect to this qualification. Not only should he not be a drunk, one who can't control himself or walk himself because of inebriation, but he shouldn't use alcohol to need it in order just to get through life or to take the edge off of ministry. You see, the word addresses drunkenness. And as it begins with a series of negatives that warn against a life that is controlled by something other than Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. So he's going to tell us, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, and not a lover of money. And these are all areas of life where outwardly we demonstrate that we are controlled inwardly by something and someone other than Jesus Christ. So he says, not violent, but gentle. And, and violence is that outward anger or, or explicit violence and action. And it could be also in language. It must not be a defining characteristic of his life. Any manner of, of starting useless quarrels and fights, whether it's with hands or tongue, should not be a part of his life. And the next trait that follows is very close to this because where he says not violent but gentle, he's speaking or referencing a likelihood or propensity to those things. But the very next one he says and not quarrelsome. So that is the propensity for. So not only should he not have the likelihood for, but neither should he have a propensity The the interesting thing is I don't know any young man who's ever not had an issue controlling his anger and learning to. So don't think this is only a few that end up with this and we've just got to find the lucky few. That's not what this is saying, friends. This is a life that has been placed under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that when the temptations come, And when the propensities begin to swell from within, the lordship of Jesus Christ quells them. Quarrelsome means no more becoming a man of God than violence. And as we continue to see in the news today, those who make their living by their tongue, maybe Isaiah teaches us this, are most apt to do the greatest harm by the same instrument. 
cannot be. Finally, not a lover of money. Is this a public characteristic? That's where Paul puts it. Why? Because the love of money can only really be demonstrated through measurable practice, faithful stewardship. When a man loves money, he'll use the church to personally profit or oppose the church when they try to use the money simply as a tool for mission the way God intended for it to be. And Paul says that can't be, that even his stewardship of life and leadership must be submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to his world's uh, word, excuse me. So he's not controlled by substance, he's not driven by inner turmoil, and he's not ruled by ungodly desire. That's what Paul is teaching us here. An elder must not live ruled by anything other than Jesus Christ. The third area of life, not only his personal life, not only his public life, but an elder and a pastor must live a prioritized life. An elder must live with one priority that Jesus is Lord over all. And here's where that priority begins. Hear me, not in the way he administrates the church. We've already seen what will determine that. But the way he manages his own family well. If a man doesn't lead his family well, he won't lead the church. For a man cannot abdicate his role at home, substituting by greater excellence anywhere else. An elder demonstrates competency to lead in the church simply by the way he manages his home. And this should be demonstrated by the way his family lives and by the way his family operates even within the church. He must be, Paul says, respected by his children. This is the natural part of a well-managed home. I'm not saying perfect children because let me tell you why. The church often wants to put that expectation upon a pastor's kids. You know how I know that? I grew up in a glass house. That's how I know that. I am a PK before I had PKs. And I can tell you there were times that that pressure from the people was sensed that in some way because I was born into a home and my father was a pastor, I had an expectation of life that was greater than any other kid. I managed to obliterate that expectation <laughs> on multiple occasions. That did not disqualify my father from his work because his response to my obliteration was what qualified him for what he did. And I didn't like it very much most times. Not only does the church sometimes, though, place that pressure on kids, so do mom and dad. Don't mess this up for me. That's not the children's qualification. It's the man's. Demanding perfect kids is never a cop-out to managing the home well. All that is is a transference of responsibility, an abdication of responsibility off of oneself onto the kids whose life it is not a responsibility to hold. 
The more accurate measure of this characteristic is simply this. Do the kids have a healthy fear and awe of daddy? It's not a question of whether they ever do anything wrong. That's never a question because they too have the human nature that is sinful that all of us have. It's not even that, that whether they just like mama and daddy because kids often don't like mama and daddy, right? I, I mean, if you're living so that your kids like you, you're in for a whole life of hardship, mama and daddy. I can tell you this, if I learned anything from my parents, they didn't give one whit whether I liked them. You know why? Because that wasn't their priority. Their love for me was always the priority, regardless of what I said about how I felt about it. But rather, he leads in what he believes, and he leads in the right way, because he is a man led by the Lord. This is so important, friends, because kids are such a barometer of our lives. Such a barometer. I've learned in my life that my kids understand my stress level better than I do. Not because they've mastered it, they just respond to it in different ways. And then my wife has to say, hey, you know where that's coming from, right? I do. They got a terrible attitude. What's wrong with them? Yes, that's not what I was speaking of. And I've even learned that when she asked the question, I didn't respond because I could never get the response right. And the right response really wasn't a response. It was a correction. And now that I have grown children or nearly grown children, I have a second lady in the house that measures me better than I measure myself often and says, Daddy, you're having a rough day. I can tell. Lord, I need so much help that I have more than one that you've sent to me. Finally, he says, must not be a recent convert. Why is that? Because salvation is exciting, but excitement is not salvation. And the excitement of salvation so quickly wanes in its outward feeling. And if we're not careful, we will live for the excitement more than we will the depth of life. And it can become a toxic dose of pride for us, for anyone who wants that excitement, who sees their performance for God as a Christian as most important. And when it becomes that toxic dose of pride for the Christian who is not prepared to war with the evil one's deception, the very deception that tempted them will be the same condemnation of accusation upon them. A young Christian easily gets enamored with position and with power. And we understand that. But an elder must know how to wield and how to master the weapons of spiritual warfare, not just to know what they are and to be familiar with them, but to hold them and to execute their use effectively for his own life so that he can lead through them as well. And then a prioritized life 
will be one, Paul says, that has a good reputation with outsiders. Now, let me say this. Earlier I said, live respectably and don't sweat the reputation. And I hold to that. You don't have to sweat your reputation when you live with integrity and you focus on your character. Your reputation will take care of itself. But what Paul's talking about here is not, uh, does not mean that we just accept a poor reputation, but rather that we live in such a way when we build our character and we love others, our reputation will take care of itself. It's something we need to have an eye on, but it's not that which we aim for it's kind of like happiness and holiness you aim for holiness you'll get happiness you aim for happiness you won't ever find holiness and that's what he's saying to us here attacks will come but attacks validate nothing an elder knows his reputation with outsiders is ultimately determined by his character and not his rumor these are the characteristics of a man's personal life, of a man's public life, and of a man's prioritized life that make up the three areas to be qualified as an elder. But I want to speak for the next few minutes to what I call the principle of a discernment process. And friends, understanding what those characteristics are is important. Understanding how those characteristics are applied becomes ever increasingly difficult within the church. And here is the principle of, dis- of the discernment process that biblical eldership demands a process of discernment for the man and for the church. Go back to verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me and look at what he says. The saying is trustworthy. What does he mean? He means this is really important. Don't miss this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It doesn't say he gets a noble task. It says he desires a noble task. It's kind of that welcome. Why don't you just come on in? And you walk in, the door locks behind you kind of thing, right? I mean, no, not, not really. But what Paul begins here is to emphasize that who leads the church is of critical importance for the church. And the reason it's important for us to understand these three areas of life and the characteristics of a man's life that, that are not difficult, we get those. To be quite honest, it's not a secondary tier of Christianity that makes a person better than all the others. It's a baseline of Christianity that every Christian should strive and attain towards. These basic characteristics. But the reason it's so important for us to know them is because we have to discern them as a body. You see, many in Ephesus in this day where Timothy was located would have disregarded the importance of this process of discernment just as many do today. Well, he wants to be, let's let him be. Some disregard, they ignore or deny the importance of biblically qualified church elders and not by a misunderstanding of the characteristics, but a misapplication of the aspiration, the process of discernment. The scriptures instruct that the church must know who is leading them. 
I'm often amazed by how quickly churches seem ready to grant leadership to the person to whom they simply like. And think about this for a moment. Good guys, we would say, don't even make one a Christian. How could they possibly make one a leader in the church? Not even giftedness makes one qualified. Therefore, if I or we like him or he's a good guy or he's really gifted becomes the standard, then following him will only be a high priority as long as he satisfies our preferences, he never offends us by what he says or does, and his performance impresses us. That's a death knell for a church, friends. may take a while to finish them off, but it will harm them every time. Biblical leadership demands one be approved by testing to reveal character. So in situations and when issues get confusing, when they become difficult and emotionally charged, trust holds unity, not only in an individual, but in the gospel, the lordship of Jesus Christ in order to move forward. You see, this is our submission to Jesus. Here's why it's so important. God set forth qualifications purposefully. Character is the essential for eldership because it reveals the true man. As Proverbs instructs, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. Qualifying a man for eldership demands a process to discern his character. But let me speak to this, what Paul begins with, with Timothy. Why is character so important? Because the work of pastoring demands character because it stretches a man. The man who aspires, Paul says, desires a noble task. The word aspire literally means to stretch out. Stretch out. When a man aspires, he is welcoming a life of being stretched out by demand or weighed down by responsibility. It can be motivated by selfish desires or God-centered desires. Ultimately, only God knows the heart. And we cannot even know the heart perfectly through the process, but we must discern it as much as we can. Many have set their eyes, their mind, or their heart without any intention of being stretched or squashed. A little stretching, a little squashing will quickly filter motivations. That's a personal testimony. The process to discern demands time for both the man who needs to see his own life and understand what the weight and the stretching demands of him. He needs an opportunity to bear that and to see that, but also for the church. They need to witness this, to observe it, so when they speak, it's firsthand. And the process affords the man time to learn and to discern the Lord's will and calling on his life and it provides that same opportunity for the church to discern his heart. A process of discernment of the biblical characteristics for qualification are given for the church and for the man. 
That's why it is so important. Churches that hold low expectations for leaders and pastors intend to grant them little trust, little influence, little ultimately authority. But when you neglect leadership this way, the whole congregation gets dishonored because you have no intention of honoring or obeying as the scriptures instruct us to do. Not only will you not trust and follow one that you don't know because of untested character, but hear me, you shouldn't follow them according to the scriptures. When hard decisions must be made and hard actions must be taken, the church needs to trust those who make those decisions and who take those actions, knowing that they are led by Jesus through them. Trust in the church leaders demands a rich soil of character to grow deep gospel roots that hold firm in Jesus. And the church that wants to know their leaders are qualified by character as competent to lead, practice the principle of the discernment process. Now I'm going to close with four quick reminders and I'll end for today. First of all, qualifications for eldership are a threshold to enter, not the finish line of arrival. Once in, they are as important on a daily basis as they were to get there. Character, I said last week, is built over a lifetime and lost in an instant. Therefore, it must be constantly growing and deepening and constantly guarded. Number two, character must be measured on the field in play, not from the living room lazy boy. It must be measured on the field in play, not from the living room lazy boy. Qualifications can only be identified in service, not in theory or even personal testimony. Observed. Qualifications mean you evaluate who a man is, not what he wants to become. Obviously, his desire and aspiration is part of that. It's not the sum total. Elder characteristics are not superstar standards. They are the essence of godliness for all. Every person should aspire to these qualifications, whether they're ever called as an elder. And last, a man can be qualified and not be called to be an elder. Eldership is not a platform, it's a calling. And this makes him no less of a person and no less important to the church to not be called specifically to the role of eldership. However, a man cannot be called and installed without being tested and qualified. That always leads to harm. Jesus gives men to lead the church who are qualified by character to lead for faithfulness to his mission.